and a bit of a summary. Remember, the first week was looking at really the overarching theme of this story where this man is miraculously healed of his blindness. Jesus intervenes in his life, bringing sight. It's an incredible miracle, and it is a picture of our spiritual blindness that everyone in this world, as a result of the fallen nature of the world, uh, as a result of our sin condition, it is like we are uh, spiritually blind or dead in our sins. And this man uh, receiving his sight is a picture of uh, the new birth of how Christ intervenes and we have sight to see Christ in all of his majesty and glory. And then last week we looked at the dangers of dead religion through the eyes of the Pharisees. So the other key players in this story are the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders. And uh, they present, I think, some helpful warnings for us to see how dead religion affects us. So the Pharisees completely refuse to consider that perhaps Jesus is indeed from God. They're unwilling to even consider that. They are so steeped in dead religion religion. And now, today we return uh, to this man who has been healed and probably come to the climax of the story, which is really in verse 38, where this man not only receives his physical sight, but his uh, spiritual sight, the eyes of his heart, the eyes of his soul are enlightened. And he says, I believe. And he worships Jesus as the Christ. Let's read our passage now with that context. So from verse 35, This is the word of the Lord. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see your guilt remains. This is the word of God. So today we're looking at this man's uh, profession, the climax of this story. This man who has his physical sight and his spiritual sight healed. But before we look at that, let's remind ourselves of the other themes that are going on in this passage. So the other themes here are these interactions with the Pharisees and then also the parents of the man that we see from verses 18 to 24. So as we see this growing faith in the man... This sort of curiosity, initially he's not really sure of exactly what's happened. One thing he knows for certain is that he was blind, now he sees, but he's not exactly sure who the man is who actually healed him. He begins to say he's a prophet, but you see this growing uh, faith or at least growing interest in who Jesus is. And as you see that growing, the contrasting themes are, number one, the stubborn unbelief of the Pharisees, completely unwilling to conceive that Jesus is from God. And then we also see a fear of man in the parents 
of the man who has been healed of his blindness. Stubborn unbelief and fear of man are two great barriers in coming to Christ. We looked at the stubborn unbelief of the Pharisees last week, so we won't look in detail at that now. But what we clearly see is that they are unpersuadable. And remember that uh, in James chapter 3, he talks about wisdom from above. Wisdom from above is open to reason, is persuadable. The Pharisees are foolish in that they are completely unpersuadable. They're not open to reason. They're not open to considering that perhaps Jesus could be at least sent from God. That's what we see from the Pharisees. Now, the parents of the man that we see from verse 18, they are not in stubborn unbelief, but they are riddled with another great barrier to true faith, which is fear of man. So in verse 19, the Pharisees interrogate the parents and they ask the parents basically three questions. They're asking uh, them, is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how does he see? And the parents are willing to at least answer uh, some of the questions. They say, well, yes, he is our son, but they dodge the rest. Now, just imagine for a moment, put yourself in the position of these parents. Imagine having a child blind from birth in first century Israel. There was certainly no NDIS back then. If you have a child blind from birth, Not only is that child seen as someone who is cursed from God, I mean, we know that because the disciples assume, ah, this man was probably blind from birth because of his sin or his parents' sin. The Pharisees condemn him as someone steeped in sin from birth. So not only would the child have been seen as under God's curse, but the parents themselves would have had to have given constant support to this child who is completely blind. The child has been deprived his whole life of all of the beautiful sights of the world. And by now, I mean, this has gone on for years and years, decades, because he's a fully grown man. That's what the parents say when they try and avoid the question, ask him, he's a man, he's of age. So this has gone on for years and years. And then imagine, imagine being the parents of that child. And one day after 20 or 30 years, he comes home and he can see out of nowhere. Imagine that. Imagine the the thrill. Imagine the joy, the unspeakable joy. Imagine the, the, the relief and the thrill that surely would have led you to say, who was this man who healed you? Let's fall at his feet and praise him. But the thing is, fear of man always crushes faith. Fear of man crushes faith. So the parents here, they forego any chance to testify to the miracle that has occurred and they put the heat back on their son. And so they say, why don't you ask him? He's of age. Why don't you ask him? And John tells us, look at verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Now, what a similar environment that we may be heading to now culturally. Think about even this idea of cancel culture. The idea of being cast out of the social sphere of influence because you hold a view contrary to to what we as enlightened society believe to be true. 
We're in a place in society now where if anyone confesses Jesus to be Lord and Savior, you risk being cast out of the social sphere. If anyone confesses a biblical worldview and then unashamedly brings that into the workplace as though it is not something that is simply reserved for private, but something that occupies your whole life, then you risk being cast out of your employment. If anyone confesses a clear distinction between the roles of women and the roles of men, then you risk being excommunicated from opportunities to dialogue because you're seen as just unworthy of interaction. You're seen as archaic, a dinosaur who holds weird and old views. Now, it's very easy for us in a relatively comfortable environment to hear this and say, kind of like Peter did, well, if everyone else is doing that, I'm not going to do that. If everyone else denies you, Lord, I won't deny you. It's very easy for us to assume uh, that we will be secure in our faith. But think about this. How will we respond when our rights are taken away? If that is to happen, how will we respond? How will we respond when our profession of Christ means that we risk social exclusion? Or we risk losing our jobs and livelihood. So in contrast to the man, uh, rather in contrast to the parents of the man here who have their uh, views on Jesus as potentially a divine healer, as someone that they could praise for healing their son, that's immediately quelched because of their fear of man. In contrast to that, as we come back to the man who has been healed, This man's views of Jesus only seem to grow to the point where right at the beginning of our passage, at the end of what we went over last week, he boldly affirms Jesus as a divine healer. And he is cast out of the synagogue. Now, being cast out of the synagogue is not a small thing. Being cast out of the synagogue is being cast out of the place of social acceptance I mean, everyone wanted to be a part of the religious elite. This is an environment where religion controlled everything. You're not simply cast out like we might think of, of a church that you go to on a Sunday. You're cast out of society. You're in a place of shame. And it is precisely in this place of shame, this place of social shame attached with being cast out of the religious circle, that Jesus meets this man. Notice in our passage in verse 35, it's not as though Jesus stumbles across him. It's as though Jesus intentionally seeks him out. All throughout this story, we see, as James prayed, the instigator of all of this is Jesus. The blind man's not instigating anything. He's blind. Jesus finds him and heals him after he is cast out of the social sphere of influence, after he is cast out of the synagogue, Jesus seeks him. And after Jesus seeks him out, he stands before him. And this leads us to the climax where Jesus, as the son of man, says, do you believe in the son of man? Now, the term son of man is Jesus' most used self-description. For those who aren't aware, I won't explain all of the details because we have gone over it, but son of man is, of course, a a term that's rooted in the Old Testament. We think particularly of the book of Daniel, where in Daniel 7, the son of man is this figure who is presented 
uh, before the ancient of days. And he has given dominion, glory and a kingdom where every people, tongue, language and nation will serve him. In simple terms, the son of man is God's representative from God himself, his representative to his people where everyone must bow before And the title has been introduced multiple times already in John's gospel, most notably when he said in John chapter 3, if you remember in John chapter 3, where Jesus is explaining on the new birth, and right after he explains on the new birth, Jesus says, anyone who looks upon the Son of Man will receive eternal life. All who look to the Son of Man will receive eternal life. Now Jesus, who has healed this man of blindness, is standing before him as the Son of Man, and he says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man says, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus says, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. So the man says, I believe, and he worships him. And that is the peak of this story. The man's physical blindness has indeed been healed, but this is really the true sight in this passage. This is the recovery of sight that the Messiah had been promised all the way back. Think of the book of Isaiah, where one of the marks of the Messiah coming was that he would recover sight of the blind, which is thinking of this spiritual blindness that lay over all people, And here, this man, his spiritual blindness is healed. He has a spiritual awakening where he sees the Son of Man. He believes in him and he falls at his feet and worships him. Now, here is where we learn some lessons of true faith from this simple story of the man who was healed of his blindness, both physically and spiritually. So there are four marks of true faith here that we can see. The first mark is true faith has an object. True faith has an object. The early picture we see in this story is actually somewhat of a vague belief. I mean, uh, the man who has been healed of his blindness kind of gives this picture like, I'm, I'm not really sure what's happened. All I know is that I was blind and now I see. But as for this Jesus, well, he could be a prophet. But all I know is that I was blind and now I see. Now, that's good, but it doesn't stop there. And that's not true faith. That's not true faith. See, true faith must have an object. So the man's faith is not fully seen until it has been directed toward Jesus as the Christ. I believe many people in our society suffer from what I would call the George Michael syndrome. If you were ever a George Michael fan and you remember George Michael's song, Just Gotta Have Faith. Just Gotta Have Faith or uh, the journey song, Don't Stop Believing. It's always like this idea of just got to have faith. And so the cultural mantra is I've just got to have faith. Well, what's the faith in? Who is the faith in? Who are you believing in? Just having faith is not enough. That's not enough. It's just wafty nonsense where that faith is not directed toward anything. Jesus never calls us to simply have faith. He calls us to have faith in him, to trust in him, to direct our faith as little as it is to him. That's why 
You could have faith as small as a mustard seed, but as long as that faith is directed wholly toward Jesus Christ, it is sufficient. He is the object of our faith. We trust in Him. We trust in His complete ability to uphold us. We trust in His complete ability to provide a righteousness for us that we could never lay claim to of ourselves. But yet by the very trust that we place in Him, we receive a righteousness that is God's approval upon us because we receive the perfect record of Jesus Christ. That is what we are trusting in, not simply having Faith. So genuine faith is directed toward Christ and Christ alone. Secondly, true faith worships. The man professes his belief in Jesus and notice he immediately worships. He, he falls at his feet. The idea of worship is about a posture. It's a posture of reverence. The word literally means to bow down. Now, the word worship today, I believe, has been hijacked by the modern uh, church, perhaps the modern world in general. And worship has become this, it means this atmosphere that we create largely through music. So the modern idea of worship is more like a rock concert than it is a biblical idea of worship, which is full of reverence and awe. In fact, a large Uh, The majority of the references to worship in the Bible actually have nothing to do with music. Now, I believe music is absolutely a part of worship, but worship was more about a posture, a posture of reverence where you would literally bow down. And so true faith in Jesus as the Son of Man bows before him in reverence. True faith consumes every ounce of our being and directs our whole being toward Christ with holy affections. So a faith that does not result in a life of utter allegiance and devotion to Christ is not a faith at all. That's not a true faith. That's probably the wafty faith that has no object. A faith that is directed toward Christ is wholly given to Christ in reverence. This is the the true and proper worship that Paul talks about in Romans 12, where he says, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Offer your whole lives as a living sacrifice to God, which is the complete abandonment of all selfish desires, the complete abandonment of all selfish pursuits, because your life is wholly wrapped up in doing what pleases the Lord. True faith leads to true worship. So though we only have a brief picture in this passage of what the man's response is, it literally only says he worships him. The picture that we should most certainly not have of this man's worship is him closing his eyes, swaying back and forth. That's not the picture of worship. The picture is him bowing down in reverence. That's the picture of true worship. This kind of worship is the fruit of true faith. Thirdly, true faith is costly. True faith is costly. So our first two points, true faith has an object. True faith leads to true worship. Thirdly, true faith is costly. This man's growing allegiance to Christ has already, before we even get to this passage, it's already cost him a place within Jewish society. He has effectively been excommunicated from the Jewish community. That's what's happened. 
So there is a great cost almost immediately to this man's growing allegiance to Christ and likewise genuine faith amongst us will prove to be costly in an environment where the modern Pharisees of our day do not like what genuine faith does. Genuine faith is transformative. Genuine faith gives its utter allegiance to Christ and no modern Pharisees like that. No one does. Genuine faith will be scorned in a society that compels us to keep our religion private, that says it's okay to worship Jesus. Just don't do it in the public sphere. Do it in your little churches and huddle yourselves away. Don't you dare bring it into the workplace. Genuine faith will be despised when it becomes clear that we wholeheartedly believe every word of God rather than approaching his word like a helpful tool book or like a salad bar so you can conveniently pick and choose what you like and dislike. Genuine faith will not be tolerated when that faith demands that we hold firmly to a biblical view of gender and sexuality. That will not be tolerated in our society. So the cost will come. Genuine faith will be costly. The cost will come. When the cost comes, we remember the words of Jesus who said, blessed are you when they revile you. Blessed are you when they persecute you, when they utter all kinds of evil, when they falsely accuse you. On my account, he says, rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. Blessed are you when they cast you out, when they revile you, you are blessed. Why are you blessed? Because Jesus himself is saying, I'm the one who's never going to leave you or forsake you. I'm never going to do that. Even if your mother and father forsake you, I never will. God has shown that by not withholding his own son, freely giving him up. So we know he is very invested in remaining with us. True faith will be costly, but Christ himself has already purchased us as his own with a great price and he will not allow his sheep to be consumed by a world full of people looking to devour his followers true faith will be costly fourthly and finally true faith will endure true faith will endure we don't get to see the life of this man after this we don't get to see what happens but i believe we can fill in the gaps from other scriptures that talk about the endurance that true faith brings. We think of the seed that falls on good soil when Jesus is talking about uh, the parable of the sower, where some seed falls on rocky soil, other seed falls amongst thorns. And it's a picture of uh, when the word goes out, responses that are not mixed with faith the only response that is mixed with faith is the seed that is sown on good soil and he explains what that is like by saying the seed that falls on good soil that is those who truly have faith it is like the word coming to a good heart people hold fast to it and they bear fruit with endurance that's what he says The seed that falls on good soil bears fruit with endurance. It endures through. So the cost will come, but true faith endures through it. Now, the writer of Hebrews talks about this. And if you do have Bibles in front of you, turn to Hebrews 10, just toward the end of your Bibles. Turn to Hebrews 10. And the writer of Hebrews talks about this in such a beautiful way. In Hebrews 10, from verse 32, the writer of Hebrews is addressing... uh, 
early Christians from a Jewish background, likely those who who suffered a great deal of persecution and of cost. And he says in verse 32, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, notice that language there, after you were enlightened, after your, your, your spiritual sight came, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. So he's giving this picture of all of their suffering. He says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So because true faith is costly, suffering will come. The writer is saying, remember in those early days, your eyes were opened. It was a glorious moment. And almost immediately you suffered. People were thrown into prison. You lost some of your property. There was a great cost. So we need endurance. So the author of Hebrews then exhorts the people. And he says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. In the midst of this cost, remember, there is a great reward. What's the reward? The reward is the object of our faith, Christ himself. That's the reward. Swimming deeper and deeper for all eternity into the ocean of knowing and serving and loving our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the reward that comes. So we endure through the suffering and the shame to then take hold of the object of our faith who has already taken hold of us. We endure through all of the trials and afflictions because there is a great reward coming. This is what the author of Hebrews goes on to say in chapter 12, when he says, we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He endured. We're being called to endurance. Jesus endured the cross, disregarding the shame, the humiliation that he was going to face. He endured through it all. And now he is seated at the right hand of the father. That's the picture we have as we endure. True faith has an object. We look to that object as the author and perfecter of our faith. And that's why our faith, as we look to him, will endure because Jesus is the one upholding us and giving us the perfect model of faithfulness. Now we have one final exhortation. If you then jump over to chapter 13 of Hebrews, as we consider what true faith looks like, particularly thinking about this environment of our society, of our society where it's full of modern Pharisees looking to cast out anyone who does not describe, who does not subscribe to their requirements. Now, in chapter 13, the writer of Hebrews continues his exhortation and he says in verse 12, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. It's a picture from the Old Testament of of the scapegoat being taken outside the gates of Jerusalem. Jesus himself, just like this man, to a greater extent, was cast out of the religious system. He was excluded from the synagogue, cast out. He was taken like a petty criminal outside the gates of Jerusalem to be hung alongside petty criminals. He was spat upon. He was mocked. And he was brutally killed. We look to the picture of Jesus who was excluded from the place of social influence, from the synagogue. He bore 
the reproach, and we are called, this is what the writer of Hebrews is calling us to, therefore, let us go outside the camp, let us go to where Jesus is, bearing the reproaches that he endured. Let us be willing to be mocked, let us be willing to be reviled, let us be willing to bear whatever reproaches must come, because that is the path of our Savior, that is the path of our suffering servant, the man of sorrows who was despised and rejected by mankind. Our faith compels us to follow Christ and to bear the reproach he endured. That is the the cost and the endurance, the responsibility of our faith. So these are the marks and exhortations for those who possess true faith. Now, as we finish, there is a warning. There is one final warning for those who have either not placed their faith in Jesus Christ or those who do not possess the faith that they profess to have. It's very easy to profess a faith, much more difficult to possess that faith. The marks of your possession of your faith will be that your faith does have an object. Your faith leads you to true worship. Your faith leads you to cost. Your faith leads you to endure. That is the mark of true faith. And now there is a rebuke to the Pharisees here who claimed to have faith. At least they claimed to be worshippers of Yahweh. And notice in verse 39, as you look back to our passage in John chapter 9, in verse 39, Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Now this is a rebuke upon the Jewish people who were blind to their coming Messiah completely blind. The same problem that they had hundreds of years earlier, where God said this people would be seeing, always seeing, and never perceive. And that was the commission he gave to Isaiah. The same problem that they had then, a people who would become blind to the things of God remains upon them so that they are blind to their Messiah right in front of them. And one thing that is for sure, stubborn, blind people always think they have 20-20 vision. The Pharisees thought they saw perfectly. So the Pharisees mockingly say to Jesus in our passage here in verse 40, they say, and you can hear the the scorn in their language, they say, are we blind also? The implication is them basically saying, of course we're not blind, Jesus. Are you really saying we're blind? Of course we're not. We're not blind. We can see perfectly. They can't even conceive of being blind. They assume they see perfectly. They assume that their lives appear spotless. They are just like the Pharisee in the story that Jesus gives of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember from Luke 18, Jesus gives that story of two people going up to the temple to pray and the Pharisee prays and uh, he is full of pride and he says, I thank you, God, that I... I fast twice a week. I tithe all my offerings. I'm not like uh, extortioners. I'm not like unjust people. I'm certainly not like this tax collector here who's just a wicked criminal. And the Pharisee is blind to his cold, dead heart. Jesus specifically says this man had faith in himself to be righteous. And yet the tax collector, the one who is already effectively cast out of the social sphere. No one likes tax collectors. The tax collector doesn't even look up to heaven. He is filled with so much shame and he beats his breast and he says, God be merciful upon me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that man went home justified. That's true faith. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, everyone who becomes blind will see. Yet everyone who thinks that they see is really blind. So the judgment upon the Pharisees becomes the warning for all people. The pathway to genuine faith is to become blind, which is to say you must forsake every thought that you can claim any merit to your salvation. You must become blind to that. You must forsake every ounce of that. You must become blind to any sight you think you have that makes you worthy to approach God. You must become blind to that. And if you become blind to that, there is an abundance of grace, an infinite ocean full of grace for those who in humility bow before Christ and say, like the hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. That is where Jesus meets us in our place of desperation, in our place of humility, and he lifts us up. And the amazing thing, just as we finish, the amazing thing about this grace of God is that we have in Scripture the perfect example of the biggest Pharisee, of the Pharisee of Pharisees, the biggest persecutor of the church that we have in Scripture, the Apostle Paul himself, who describes himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees, who was full of prideful rage, dragging followers of Jesus out of their places of residence, leading them to death. He was there approving of the death of Stephen in Acts 8. And God in his mercy saves him. And have you ever thought about this in light of our passage? How is it that God saves him? Paul is on the road to Damascus. He's there to try and send more followers of Jesus to their death. And suddenly a light shining brighter than the sun knocks Paul to the ground and blinds him. Paul actually becomes blind. The Pharisee of the Pharisees. God in his mercy shines his light. He makes Paul blind. The next thing Paul hears right before he sees again is Ananias coming and basically saying to him, the Lord Jesus is going to give you sight and fill you with the Holy Spirit and you're going to proclaim his mercy to many people. The next minute, Paul's blindness is healed. He is baptized into the Lord Jesus. See, there is no alternative way to come to Jesus. Sure, the grace of God knows no ends, but there is no alternate route to true faith. You must become blind and God will make you blind like he did to Paul so that you may finally see Everyone must bow in humility. They must abandon every claim of merit and become humble beggars before a merciful God. And for those who do bow in humility, Christ is pleased, just like he did to this man, to seek them out, to seek them out in their place of shame, cleanse them completely, lift them up to a place of family of God, to actually say, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, all those who become blind to any claim of merit they have 
to be worthy of righteousness. All those who realize nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. That is where the grace of God lifts you up to see with clarity the majesty and beauty and glory of Jesus Christ, to know that you are a fellow heir, to know that you are a child of God.